0: Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning again, and let us turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at this morning, verses 26 through 31. 26 through 31. Let me read that. Mark chapter 14. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall scatter, be scattered. And after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, "Truly, I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, your, yourself, uh, you yourself will deny me three times." But Peter kept saying insistently, "Even if it were, if I were to, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you." And they were all saying the same thing. Also, let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, contained in the Word of God uh, is by, um, it is the very revelation of who you are and what you have prophesied that you would do and what you intend to do and what you have done. Lord, I thank you that we're able to read it this morning, we're able to Look at it, hold it in our hands. We're able to take it with us. And I pray, Lord, that we would never take for granted of that freedom. And I pray that as we do that, we would be very serious about our faith, about our walk with you. And Lord, when we fail, when we fail, I pray, Lord, that we would would know for sure that you are there to pick us up. But I pray, Lord, the appropriate things from our fall we would learn so we can be stronger in Christ, more humble in Christ, and, Lord, more able to be used by the Spirit of God in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves. And I pray this in your name, amen. Mark chapter 14, I just want to... Of course, back up, remember the Lord's Supper was just prior to this section of Scripture. And in that section, Jesus unlocked the meaning of his death by connecting it to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover and, of course, leading into translating those things into the Lord's Table. And Jesus, on that day, did something really new in the Passover meal. This new act was an act of eating and drinking, but that meal that Jesus presented was only a meal of bread and wine. There was no sacrificial lamb and because the main course was uh the reason why there was no lamb is because the Lamb of God was at the table, and he was going He is going to offer himself as a sacrifice. Remember it's still Thursday before jesus uh is going to be brought in uh, before the Sanhedrin and, of course, then be crucified. And so the elements of the bread become very significant. The element of the unleavened bread in verse 22, where he says he took some bread and after a blessing he gave it to them to take, this is my body. Remember, the bread that represented the Exodus now came to represent the body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So this New Exodus is through his death. He brings deliverance from sin's condemnation, curse, and bondage. And, of course, that means redemption is provided for those who come by repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and which we are then considered by God to be unleavened or without sin because of what Christ did. And then, of course, the element of the cup which would be the fruit of the vine, Jesus takes this cup and he passed around the cup after each section of the the Passover meal and the cup that had represented the lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost and lentils now came to represent the blood of the lamb, this unblemished lamb of God shed for the salvation of lost sinners. So his blood is not just providing a covering for sin like in the Old Testament, but actually a total washing away and a wiping away of sin forever that it could never come up against any one of God's kids and condemn them again because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So the bread and the wine which is eaten reminds us that our salvation is achieved through Christ alone and, of course, his resurrection secures our salvation for eternity. So that means the Passover was transformed into the Lord's Supper. Now, why is that important before this next section? It's because, remember, that Jesus is saying to his disciples, I must die. And I must die the way the prophet said. I must die to fulfill all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. I must die and be sacrificed like a lamb and shed my blood because in the shedding of my blood, I am going to ratify with my people a new covenant. And that covenant is going to be, look at verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So Jesus' blood is confirm the new covenant promise that it is true and it is binding on all who would believe as Hebrews the book of Hebrews tells us that he takes away the first that's the old law and of course he establishes the second and by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all and as I said last time The old covenant was based on Mosaic law. It brought condemnation because no one could actually keep it. The law actually condemned a person. But the law did lead someone to a conclusion, and that conclusion would be Christ. All right? And of course, the new covenant was based on Jesus' blood, and it frees everyone who believes in Jesus Christ from all condemnation. Now, that brings uh, us to. Actually, verse number 25, right before verse 26, where it says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my my kingdom, in the kingdom of God. All right? So, in other words, Jesus here is making a oath. Now, the reason why I say that is because usually when a group of Jews decided not to eat or drink, They were making a pact with each other. They were making an oath that they are not going to do anything like eating and drinking until they do this one thing that they make an oath under. Now, take your Bibles for a moment. I just want to give you an example of that, which I didn't give last time, and it's Acts chapter 23. Keep your hand here in Mark, but Acts chapter 23, verse 11 through 14, and you'll see what I mean, that... uh, And here's the situation while you're turning there that Paul was preaching in this passage on the resurrection and a serious dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the authorities actually got wind of this and so they snatched Paul away and brought him to a barracks, an army barracks for protection. And the reason for such a snatch and grab, the Jews had plotted Against Paul and made an oath that they would neither eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now notice in verse number 11 of Acts 23, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also." When it was day, the Jews formed the conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that we would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who who formed this plot and they came to the chief priests and elders and says, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. So see, there is the background of what is being, taking place right here where we see that the oath is communicated in verse number 25, as I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. That's back in Mark. So see, an oath was really taken very seriously uh, in the the Bible times and it, It was actually established by killing an animal and then uh, cutting the animal in two pieces and then walking through the middle of the animal because the animal had shed his blood. While they're walking through the cut-up animal, they are actually pronouncing their oath verbally so people would know that they were serious and that if they did not keep that oath, that they could be cut in pieces in half like these animals. So very serious a solemn thing. Now, this is what the Lord is saying here, that, in other words, the Lord keeps his promises. He's not going to go back on his promise, that uh, the Lord' Supper is something that is, is, is a meal, and the Lord invites us to the meal, in, and in effect say, says to us, come to my table. This is my body. This is my blood. Take this and eat it and drink it and pledge yourself to me. So, as followers of Christ, we are awaiting a day when we will be in the very presence of Jesus in the Father's kingdom, drinking the cup of full acceptance, both in promise and, of course, then in reality. Now, all that for what comes next is that Jesus, again, is communicating very emphatically The meaning of his death. The divine causality is that Mark is saying that the Son of Man in back in uh, Mark, you you want to turn there, verse number twenty-one, where it says the Son of Man is to go just as is written of him. So the Son of Man, of course, remember Jesus referred to him not as the Messiah. But even though he refers to himself as the Son of Man, of course, which indicated that he was the Messiah, right? And so Jesus refers to himself as that. And so the Son of Man is following a preordained path already set for him in Scripture. And that path was very clear. The path was he must be betrayed. The path is that he must suffer, like it tells us in the book of Acts, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And, of course, that led to he must die. He must die in Acts again, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then we get to a book like Corinthians where it says, for I delivered to you as of the first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, all right? That's why Christ died for our sins because it was already in God's plan that that would take place right from the beginnings so the disciples in other words are still not grasping the need for the messiah to die they are thinking still even up until this point 3 years walking with jesus they're still thinking a dying messiah makes no sense the only messiah that makes sense to us is a victorious one a, a, a Messiah who's a conquering king, a Messiah who's going to to uh, accomplish what they could never accomplish, and so they just can't get it in their minds and hearts that Jesus must die, the Messiah must die. So, because the disciples do not grasp uh, this this particular truth, it leads to a gradual almost undetectable movement away from Jesus, which unbelief usually does. It leads someone away from Jesus. A kind of heart backsliding was taking place in the disciples, which we're going to look at more later in another message, but these disciples were not ready for what was going to take place even though Jesus had mentioned it three, four, five times in in the scriptures, and how many more times that are, are not recorded in scriptures that he mentioned it to his disciples. So dangerous circumstances arose that exposed a misunderstanding and a human weakness that resulted in failure. The foreknowledge of Jesus predicts the spiritual failure in his disciples. So let's see what led to the disciples' failure, because these are the same things that leads to our failures. And uh, spiritual failure is something we're all going to experience at some time in our Christian walk. So, what's the first thing that we see? Well, it's the first thing is the the, the misunderstanding about Jesus' mission that leads to really a uh, a defection of Jesus, a fickle defection, and uh, of course that meant that was spiritual failure. So notice in verse number 26, and we're back in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, uh, of course, they sing a hymn after the Lord's table. They didn't get the meaning of the Lord's table there, that it was about Jesus' death as the Lamb of God, as the Passover Lamb. And so in verse 27, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away because it is written I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. So Jesus is prophesying with a foreknowledge about the actions of his disciples. And the, the term used here, fall away, is actually a word that we are a little bit familiar with. It's, it's, we get the word s- scandalized from it. Um, it's a scandal, but here it's it's used more specifically to mean to be caught in a trap. See, the idea of the underlying verb is that of a crooked stick to which the bait is affixed and by which an animal is led right into a trap. You know, it's something dangling on a stick like a piece of meat and you put it before a, a dog and you can lead the dog right where you want it to because they want to eat the food, right? Right? Well, this is the this is what's going on here, and so th- these disciples are actually being led by something, and it's leading them right into a trap. That, of course, when you lead them into the trap, the trap springs, and uh, and then of course it catches the animal. Now, what's interesting here is that the verb used here, this verb uh, scandalizzo, is a passive verb that that really helps us understand. The disciples' defection was not a willful defection; it was actually an external something external causing caused them to fall spiritually, in other words, a circumstance that arose that they were not able to handle at this particular point see the, so the disciples uh, in other words were they were by an external factor played upon them in their fleshly weakness and caused them to finally defect from Jesus. Now, what was the cause of the disciples stumbling? Well, the basic cause was human weakness. Uh, There are always some circumstances which strongly appeal to our weaknesses and lead us to spiritual failure. I also... It also shows us that uh, no one can continue to follow Jesus in human strength alone. Have you discovered that yet, that you cannot carry out the word of God? You cannot do the things that God asked you to do on your own strength. It's impossible to do. It's impossible to live the Christian life with just mere knowledge alone. I need, I, you and I need way more than that. We need some one, to help us to live the Christian life. And remember, this is prior to the crucifixion. This is prior to the resurrection. And this is prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's very important to know in understanding what's happening, what's going on here. So what caused the disciples stumbling? Well, what really caused them to stumble is that that they were entrapped by something very that is answered from actually Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 you don't have to turn there because it's right here in scripture Jesus quotes the passage here it says in verse number 27 because it is written I will I will who's that I will I God will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered now that's a very interesting What it says there, it is saying that the Father will strike Christ on the cross. That's what it's saying there. All right? So that is is something that Jesus brings to their attention. And in the original context of Zechariah 13, verse number 7, it referred to the martyrdom of the end-time good shepherd. And the martyrdom of the end-time good shepherd. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ, right? So... God will strike, or he allows Jesus to be struck as a shepherd. And so the actual passage says this, O awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, that the sheep may scatter, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Jesus actually uses this prophecy in reference to his own death and its effects upon his disciples who did not yet believe that he would die. So the disciples are, in other words, trapped, ensnared, overwhelmed, led into this trap by Jesus' sudden arrest and trial. You would think at this point, this, this is a given. You guys, this, he's been telling you all along. How come you don't get it? Well, they didn't get it. And so they were led into this trap. It's The very arrest and trial was the trap that they should have understood, and they did not, so the disciples are disillusioned. And Jesus, of course, his coming suffering and death, and the way God would afflict him by himself and man. And so the result of the disciples' stumbling would be that they would be scattered in their faith uh, in Jesus Christ, that they would be shaken in their confidence in Jesus as the Messiah, that they are still not grasping a suffering Messiah. So they are weak and helpless. And they are thinking that the Messiah is weak and helpless. Not them, but he's not doing something right. So the disciples will be so upset in every way that they leave Jesus. Now, you know what happens when sheep are shepherdless. All right? Well, when they are shepherdless, they're scattered in all directions, right? Because all sheep, all God's people need a shepherd, all right? Either a shepherd's going to lead you uh, beside still waters and green pastures or a shepherd is not going to be there and then the sheep wander all over the place and they get in all kinds of trouble when they do that. And that's still true today because one of the dumbest animals on the earth is uh, a lamb, right? And we're sheep, so it doesn't say much for us, does it? Uh, but nonetheless, we need, that's why we need what Christ has for us. And so, see, the disciples uh, being so upset and now being, in a sense, rejecting the shepherd that was the Messiah, they are now, now find themselves in trouble. Uh, but thank the Lord that Jesus shows compassion and care for the sheep by carrying out to completion... God's plan of redemption. So the Lord sees his disciples through this temptation. And how does he do that? Well, it brings me to a second point, and it would be this, that a person fails by misreading God's methods of redemption that leads ultimately to spiritual failure. They misread that if they were going to be passed over by God and the blood was going to be applied to them, that Jesus was the Passover lamb to die and shed his blood for his sheep. If they rejected that, remember, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sins. So they're in a very uh, difficult place as the Lord's disciples. But, of course, the Lord loves them and he's going to provide for them. And so Jesus, thankfully, provides for our weaknesses and our failures when we do fall on our face. And Jesus is willing and also able to restore us when we fall. And human failure does not scuttle God's plan or purposes. Now, I want you to notice, how does the Lord do this? Well, he tells them. Notice in verse number 28 what he says. He's actually saying several things. He's saying, number one, um, I will redeem the sheep. It says in verse number 28, but after I have been raised. Now, this remember, this is before his, his uh, trial. This is before his crucifixion. This is before his raised. He's saying to them, listen, after I have been raised, giving them a sense of hope that God as the agent will not only smite the shepherd, but he will also raise the shepherd from the dead this Messiah. So after God accomplishes redemption and is raised from the dead, then he will bring his scattered sheep together again and he will meet up with his disciples in a certain place. Now look at verse number 28 again. It says, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that are now on the verge of rejecting him, saying, Listen, after I get raised... I'm going to meet you over here in Galilee. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to regather you. I'm not only going to redeem you, I'm going to regather you, and then I'm going to resume leadership over you as the shepherd. Well, if look over to Mark chapter 16, verse 7, where he, it says there, but go, Mark 16, verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter... He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. All right, in other words, the Bible is telling us what Jesus is going to do, and then he tell, it tells us what he has done. And what he has done at that point in chapter 16 is his, he was crucified, he was raised, and now he's in a glorified body, and he's going to meet up with his disciples, uh, and he's going to resume leadership over them, so Jesus will appear to them as the great shepherd of the sheep that leads his flock. All right, and of course he will unite with the sheep, and then he will give them the last words that before he ascends into heaven. And what were those last words? Uh, those last words were were something like, uh, "Teach them, uh, teach for his disciples. Go and teach them to observe all that I command you, and I am." with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is what he says to his disciples, but they still don't get it. They still are in spiritual failure. So who's the leader of the disciples at this point? Peter is, right? Well, I think Peter shows uh, and is the one who maybe is the example of how much you can put your foot in your mouth. And uh, because, because of this reason, because mere confidence in fleshly powers is a receipt for spiritual failure. You got that? When you trust just in yourself, in your abilities, in your knowledge, in your experience, that is a receipt for spiritual failure in your life. You could never, ever stop and depend on that alone. In fact, those things should really humble us because we really realize when we become believers that we don't know a whole lot. We don't have a lot of power and strength. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We, We can know God's plan and live according to that, but even that, we need God's strength to do that. So now let's look at what happens to the leader of the group. So we are looking now in verse number 29 of Mark chapter 14, and we see actually Peter berating God's method of salvation. Right By Peter misreading of God's method of redemption, he was actually shunning the cross. And Peter, being a strong leader, And dead sure that others may be caught in a trap and desert Jesus, but he will not. Look at verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all, that's all the other disciples, may fall away, yet I will not. You know what that's called? That's called overconfident. All right? So one of the the surest ways to fall into temptation is to become overconfident. He is overconfident. So Peter has such an arrogant elevation of himself here as compared to all the other disciples. Imagine if somebody says to you, listen, I am better than you. I know more than you. I'm stronger than you. In every room he walks into, that's what he would proclaim. So in other words, you think that needs to be adjusted a bit? I think so. And the Lord, by this circumstance, adjusts. Peter, because we're going to, he's going to use Peter in a, in a great way, in an, an incredible way. But Peter has such an elevation of himself as compared to the other disciples, he thought, I will be the ex- exception. I will not get trapped like everyone else. I'm not following the piece of meat on the bait right into the trap. I'm better than that. I'm smarter than that. I've been the leader of this group. I'm in the inner circle of Jesus. But I must say this Peter did have a genuine love for Jesus at this point. But his ignorance about his fleshly weakness was overwhelming. That Peter has not come very far spiritually. Actually, he didn't come very far at all. He was not necessarily growing as he should be growing. And to show you that go back to mark chapter 8 for a minute and notice in verse 31 because this was the encounter that Jesus had with Peter when again Jesus told them I'm going to die Peter I'm going to be suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again on the third day and notice what Peter's response is in mark chapter 8 verse 31 It says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33, but turning us around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. That was that was a while ago, uh maybe that was year two when he was walking with Jesus. And so Peter, even now, is not he's still in the same place. He's misreading the plan of God, he's not getting what Jesus is saying about his death and resurrection. And so Jesus warns Peter, he warns him about his sure defection, and not only his defection, but his denial. So Peter's failure is a greater failure than the rest of the disciples. Jesus says to Peter, here's what's real. Now back to chapter 14. Here's what's real in verse number 30 that, listen, you will not only desert me, but you will actually openly and publicly deny me. In verse number 30, and Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. So this Thursday evening, uh, very late, Peter is going to deny Jesus. So these three denials are not just a momentary slip of weakness. They are evidence of extreme spiritual failure, and that's on the leader of the disciples because of his misunderstanding and misreading of God's plan and his even lack of evaluating his own weaknesses uh, led him to spiritual failure. Now, sometimes I hear, uh, inexperienced believers confidently assert that they will follow Christ, come what may. And when I hear this, I, I, I think I kind of have a feeling of pleasure, and and I have a feeling of concern, because naive presumption that one can follow Christ by simply by by a simple assertion of will in really invites a rude awakening. Um, in all believers, that we can never uh, say that I can follow Christ by what I know and I don't need to know anymore, or I can follow Christ and I don't need to, the church body. I can live my lo- Christian life alone privately and I have, I'll have the strength I need, or I can live the Christian life without the word of God. Only uh, I don't need to hear preaching and I don't need to hear... Uh, be in a Bible study and I don't need to be in Sunday school because, you know, I, I kind of know enough and and I can get by on what I know. That is, the, that is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for spiritual failure. We should never, ever think that we ever come to the place in our spiritual walk that we're strong enough. Peter has such uh, an elevation of himself that leads him to this place and, of course, it's much better to understand our spiritual weakness and say, I know I can't do it alone. But by God's grace and his spirit and his word and his church body, I am going to do my best. See, so mere confidence in fleshly powers is definitely a receipt for spiritual failures. So Christians who become self-confident also become less dependent on God's word, less dependent on God's spirit, and become careless in their living and in their Christian walk. Their carelessness then increases an openness to temptation and a fall into sin. That's exactly what's happening to Peter here. He thinks that he's strong enough, he's not strong enough, and he falls for the trap more than everyone else because not only does he deny Jesus and uh, defect from Jesus, he is filled with pride. He's filled with pride, and uh, and he falls smack on his face. We're going to see that later on in the next chapter, but I'm not going to look there right now. But what I want to just let you know that Peter really does highly doubt Jesus' evaluation of himself. And so he raises his volume and keeps on protesting and speaking excessively, the Bible says, that others may, but I will not deny you, renounce you, or disown you. Look at verse number 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, And they all were saying the same thing. So Peter leads the rest of the disciples to say the same thing he was saying. So when we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest and our moral life the purest, watch out. Because you're in trouble. You're already right there by the trap. Because you know why? We have an enemy against our soul, Satan, who is very slick at temptation. He cannot make you sin, but he sure can tempt you to sin. And that's where we have to be on our guard. So we should be most on our guard and most dependent on our Lord when we do sense some kind of spiritual strength, and spiritual boldness. Not that we don't receive that. In the spirit of God, we do, but that's the right kind. So the rest of the disciples follow Peter's lead and say the same thing as he says. And remember, one will betray Jesus, ten will desert Jesus, but Peter will desert and deny him. So the disciples, remember, frequently misunderstand and fail. They frequently do that. And it goes to show that without the power of God, all disciples are overcome by their weaknesses. Jesus, of course, will give the disciples strength to overcome. He will go back to heaven, the Bible says, and he will send the promise of the Father, and the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit who will indwell his children. And then, of course, When we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, he gives us the strength, the insight, to know how to understand the plan of God, to know how to implement the plan of God, and even to know how to to look at ourselves and also to how how to fight the, the enemy, the devil. So it's important, really, for all believers to start learning about, if you have not learned about, the works of the flesh and the indwelling of the Spirit and the schemes of Satan that wants to entrap you. So believers, born again by the Spirit, are different than they were before, at least they are supposed to be. They have new desires, desires for what is holy and honoring to God. Christians become caught between two desires in their Christian walk a desire for the lust of the flesh or the passion of the flesh and a desire for God. When Christians sin, they momentarily persuade are persuaded by the desire to commit sin, thinking, thinking this, that fulfillment of that desire is more pleasurable than the pleasure of obedience to Christ. In repentance, however... The Christian is again persuaded by the greater pleasure in Jesus than what sin can promise. So the struggle is the main struggle of the Christian life, a war of desires in pursuit of real pleasure and happiness. And even the most devout Christians will still be tempted by the idea that sin will make them happier than God will. Sin, indeed, does give certain amount of happiness, though it is much less and much short-lived than happiness God gives. So when we think of that, we also think that there are three really primary actions that Christians must take to win the inward fight against the flesh. And, of course, that would be, first of all, that... They must consider themselves dead to sin or count on the death of Christ. Secondly, they must put their sinful desires to death, and that is to kill the old man and not make provision for the flesh. And then, of course, they must nurture and strengthen the new man, basically to achieve victory over the desires of the flesh. The philosopher and theologian R.C. Sproul said, in simple terms, the flesh has to be weakened and the spirit has to be strengthened. That is the only way. And so this is where God will bring us when we become believers and when we're growing in Christ. And, of course, then we will discover, hopefully uh, before that, that the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Holy Spirit works inside the believer both to produce good fruit and, of course, to build the believer's understanding of the truth, that the Spirit works on the believer's consciousness with the truth, that God is not only the Holy Spirit, but he is the Spirit of truth. As it says in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, but when the Helper comes, the Spirit of God, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me so the holy spirit's work in uh, of instruction is accomplished by specific and practical means and that is the word of god the spirit of god does not bypass the word of god to produce spiritual growth in our lives so spiritual god's supernatural he supernaturally transforms the mind By use of the Word of God to enlighten the Christians so that they develop deep biblical convictions, that the believer's conscience is really conditioned anew and will not allow his, actually, will not allow himself to live against those convictions. The Spirit of God can develop such strong convictions in believers by the Word of God that it prevents them from going to certain places. So they develop convictions resulting in a sanctified Christian desire to do what is right, to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit of God teaches and renews the believer's mind with truth and ultimately produces mature thinking. The Apostle Paul taught this concept of maturity through the Spirit of God in the book of Romans where he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. And then again, Paul mentions in Corinthians chapter 14, he says, Brethren, do do not be children in your thinking, yet... In evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. So as the Spirit of God works in the believer to sanctify him or her, the believer in turn cooperates with the truth, works out what he or she is learning in their daily life, and of course this practical outworking includes standing firm with the truth in spiritual warfare, and against temptation. So Christians cannot really resist their powerful and deceitful adversary without the power of the Holy Spirit. That would mean that we have an enemy, and the enemy, he schemes against us, he wants to trap us. And if the enemy knows how to tempt a person according to that person's remaining corruption. And if Satan understands th- thoughts and imaginations and secret ambitions and intentions and even motives, then the believer must remain sp- specifically alert to his own unique makeup, his own unique weaknesses and strengths, because both can get us into trouble. So if Satan can suggest ideas to the Christian's mind and inflame the believer's affections with desires that stand in opposition to godlessness and spiritual growth, then we all need to take the devil seriously and to take heed to understand what parts of our lives deserve special caution. What in our character can be led astray easily? And make provisions uh, against the flesh to go in that direction, so though Christians do not know when the devil will strike, they can be ready for his attacks. for it tells us in Corinthians chapter chapter two, second Corinthians, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his traps, so Satan is wants to plant within the mind of a Christian to do the opposite of God's will. So the enemy desired really to introduce hatred and animosity into certain parts of the congregation uh, in the Corinthian church, and he did that, and he does that to destroy its relationships, to destroy its unity, and to destroy ultimately its gospel witness. He does that in our life, And so these terms in Scripture to take advantage and ignorance suggest that the target of Satan is the believer's mind. He wants to attack you in your thoughts. He wants to attack you in the way you reason. And so these mind attacks of the devil come very forcefully, and they are the things that we need to be aware of the most. We kick around... The devil's deceptions in our minds and there's, his deceptions are very convincing. They're, they sound a lot like truth, but they are not the truth of God's word. And what does he do? He, he causes us to say things like this to ourselves. God, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would he? So whatever circumstances comes up that would cause you to be happy, you go for it. all right? Or you would think, why fight the feeling? Everybody else is doing it. So why can't I do it, right? This won't lead to anything else. I've always wondered what it would be like. Just this once. It's no big deal. No one will ever know. I can get away with it this time. See, all those things suggest that we can get away with things. That somehow God is not looking. Or that... We presume that he's going to forgive us after we sin. Now, he does, but the thing is that presumptuous sin is a very serious sin. See, we we think like this, oh, what I'm going to do don't affect anyone else. I can just confess it, and it'll be like I never did it. Or God will stop me if he doesn't want me to go any further. See, the more we roll things like that over in our mind and the more we detect that these are sig- satanic suggestions for us to sin, the more deceived we become and eventually we get trapped and we fall into sin. So the bait is taken, the hook is set, and the line is reeled in. But the Lord gives us victory in, in every temptation He tells us in the Word of God that we have a way out of every single temptation, and that way out is to know the truth. So, see, Satan's works on believers to get the better of them. The devil wants to destroy the power and testimony of the church, of your own personal life, and put stumbling blocks in front of the believer's way, keeping them as ignorant as possible, And stifling their spiritual growth by all these things he just throws at us all the time. Instead of identifying them, checking them off and getting rid of them and having the mind of God so we don't be led into temptation is really what we want to do. So we don't fall into spiritual failure. So we don't fall like the disciples fell. Disciples are going to learn that Jesus is going to tell them, listen, Go wait in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, and don't do one thing until the Spirit of God comes and fills you. And then you will have what you need to do the work of God. So you cannot do the work of God without the Spirit of God, without the Word of God. You cannot do that. I cannot do that in my own strength because I have no strength in that area. See, when I am weak, God is strong. God takes this earthen vessel and he displays his glory in our weakness. That's what he does. So if you think you're strong, God's not. If you think you're weak, then God's strong. See, that, it's, it's completely opposite, isn't it? It's, we have to change our way of thinking about it, but that's exactly what God does. So see, spiritual failure comes when one has a misunderstanding of God's mission to rescue the souls of people. Spiritual failure comes when one has misread God's word and method of redemption, that is the death of Jesus, the Passover lamb. Spiritual failure is inevitable when one depends on their own strength and wisdom instead of the strength and wisdom of the Lord. Of course, some of the solutions that we have is to be aware of your own weaknesses, to be aware of your own strength to depend on the Word and the Holy Spirit of God, to get insight into the schemes of the devil, specifically how they're addressed to your life, and then in doing all that, make no provision for the flesh to feed it, put it to death. And the Lord says you'll be able to say no to sin and no to temptation, and then in doing so, you actually have spiritual success and not spiritual failure. So we're very much like the disciples. Don't think we're any different. We're right there with Peter. We would have, been, we would have done the same thing as he did. And, um, but because we have the rest of the story, we don't have to. Because we have the Spirit of God, we don't have to. Because we have the Word of God, we don't have to. Because we have the church, we don't have to. We can actually live successful Christian lives. Not perfect Christian lives, but successful Christian lives where we're growing more and more and more like Christ, because that's God's plan anyway, right? It's not just to be saved, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's plan. And then take you out of here to glory. And then you're in his presence without all these problems, all these issues. And I don't even have to preach this anymore. I'll be done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Your goodness to us is is over the top, Lord. We don't even deserve to know these things. But, Lord, thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you, Lord, you lead us beside still waters. Thank you, Lord, that you give us real examples in scriptures that we can relate to. And we can say to ourselves, we're just like them. But, Lord, you gave them hope. You led them to the truth. You gave them your spirit. And, Lord, you became their Passover lamb, and then after you ascended, they preached that message, and we're here today because of the disciples' faithful preaching. So, Lord, you still are doing the same thing today, Lord, so use us to do to continue the work, the unfinished work of Christ. So, Lord, more people can hear the gospel, more Christians can grow strong in their faith, and, Lord, the world could know that Christ is the only answer and the only one where one could be right with God. I pray that would be the message we always preach, and I pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we stand.